When we want to connect with each other, how do we cross the great divide of different worldviews, cultures or religions? How can we work together effectively? Well, first, we need a bridge. Welcome to Bridging Peoples. In this Bridging Peoples podcast, we explore the human side of aid and development. Join me as I chat with researchers and practitioners about their work around the globe. I'm your host, Deborah Cummins. As we enter into the holy month of Ramadan, a time that, in part, is about reaching out to those who need it, it's important to remember that COVID-19 is not affecting all of us equally. For some of us, we can snuggle in at home as best we can, and I hope that that's what you're doing. This episode, though, is dedicated to others, those people around the world for whom coronavirus only compounds an already impossible situation. Refugees, people living under various forms of oppression, including the people of Palestine. In this conversation, I talk with Lubna Shamali, Unit Manager for Human Rights Organisation, Badil. When I see that Palestinians are resolute in not being displaced, so for me, it's not a matter of what they are doing, but the fact that they won't go. You know, um, their steadfastness astounds me. This was a conversation that I recorded last year, in 2019, during a visit to Palestine. So today I'm sitting in the offices of Palestinian human rights organisation Badil, located in Bethlehem, in the West Bank, in Palestine. And I have with me today unit manager and human rights activist Lubna Shamali, who will share with us a little bit about her life as a Palestinian woman and also some of the work that she and her colleagues have been doing. Welcome Lubna and thank you for joining me. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for being interested. So I like to begin these conversations by going a little bit into the the personal, the human side. So can you share with us some of your story? What brought you here to Bethlehem and to be working with Badil? Uh, I was born here in Palestine, in a small town called Beit Sahor, which is just adjacent to, to Bethlehem. Uh, my family uh, immigrated to the U.S. when I was very young, I was three and a half years old. Lived in the U.S. for most of my childhood and adult life. Uh, but during that time, we would visit Palestine often during the summers uh, because my father wanted to make sure that we had that connection to our relatives, to the homeland, and so on and so forth. Uh, so we are not refugees. Uh, we are immigrants, I guess. So we have American citizenship as well, but we're also Palestinian. Um, in 2008, um, my husband and I, we decided to move back to Palestine permanently. Um, it was a decision that we made um, as a family together, even though our children were quite young then. Uh, but we felt that it was important to be able to provide them with the opportunities that living in Palestine could offer you, and I know that sounds kind of weird, but for us it was important that they make the connection also to the homeland and relatives and way of life. And for me particularly, there were two things. Um, One, that I wanted them to learn the language, which I didn't. 
uh, because I spent most of my education or all of my education abroad. Yeah. Um, so I can speak Arabic. Um, now I can read, but I still can't write. I'm not a fluent. I'm not a writer at all. I don't write anything, basically. I wanted that for them. I think language is important in mm -hmm. terms of identity and, um, and other things, being able to communicate with your, your people, your nation group. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is I didn't want them to grow up being ashamed of who they were. Yeah. Because in the American media, of course, Palestinians and Palestine are presented in a very negative light. And of course, this is an understatement. Uh, so I wanted them to make sure that they understood the root causes of the conflict and what was going on. So they didn't grow up thinking, you know, why is everyone against me? Why uh, does everyone think I'm a terrorist? And, and these types of things, which is basically, even to this day, the image that the U.S. media presents about Palestine and Palestinians. Yeah. Yeah. And can you share with us some of the work that you do with Badil? But deal, I would classify it, or I would categorize it as a uh, advocacy organization. Well, first of all, we fall in the human rights sector, so we, we're not a development organization or a, or a humanitarian aid organization. Uh, we're a human rights organization, and the main focus of our work is advocacy. So even when we talk about um, the work that we do with Palestinian civil society, particularly youth, um, it's about informing them and making them aware so that they can advocate on their own behalf. Mm -hmm. uh, some people call it, of course, awareness raising, empowerment. You know, the uh, donor community has a bunch of terms that they use. Yeah. Um, we have what is called special consultative status with the United Nations. So we engage quite significantly with the UN and the many different forums. Uh, making statements, submitting statements, reports to the different bodies of the UN on the specific human rights situation in Palestine. Mm -hmm. And I understand as well that in addition to these uh, high-level interventions, uh, you also support a number of community-based initiatives. Can you explain a little more about that? Uh, again, when we talk about Badil being a human rights organization rather than a development or humanitarian aid organization, we look at those types of initiatives with the purpose of creating a situation that allows enhanced access either to land or to certain services that would sustain communities and prevent them from being displaced. Yeah. So, for example, we would install solar panels uh, mm -hmm. for a community center so that they could have electricity yeah. uh, and be able to provide recreational activities for the community. Mm -hmm. Or we would build an agricultural road uh, to areas that are area C for farmers so that they could have easy access to their farmlands mm -hmm. and be able to cultivate those lands. Or uh, one project that we did was installed water pumps uh, for villages that when they would receive water, um, the pressure would be too um, low for the water to actually reach certain areas and certain communities. Mm -hmm. With the installation of the water pumps, it increased the pressure, and so these families were now able to get um, access to water. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I've been on a pretty steep learning curve since visiting here. I'm staying with a friend in Dahisha camp, which I believe has existed as a refugee camp since 
the mid-1940s, and they were just, with the situation, with the conflict, which has gone on for so long, it's very easy to get confused with all of the details. So I'm hoping with this conversation that we can break it down a little bit. So can you begin by starting with what, what's been the human impact of this conflict? What is happening right now in the West Bank, in Palestine? The human impact on Palestinian civil society has been um, devastating, I would say. Um, we have some of the highest unemployment rates in the world, yeah. um, particularly among youth. Um, everyone, or not everyone, but the vast majority of people that you speak with are, are always looking for a way out, yeah. uh, trying to get visas or trying to get um, ways in which they can leave Palestine. And this is, as I said, it's the creation of a situation that is unbearable. Yeah. So if you can't move, freely, mm -hmm. and you can't express yourself freely, and you can't access your most basic human rights, mm -hmm. uh, land, water, healthcare, education, etc., etc. Even who you can marry is dictated by Israel. Who you fall in love with is dictated by Israel, by, by its laws. Um, in what way? Well, they, they deny family unification. So, for example, if a Palestinian in the West Bank were to fall in love with a Palestinian in Jerusalem, they can't live together legally according to Israeli law. Or in other words, the status of what it means to be a Palestinian in Jerusalem will not be transferred to the West Bank ID holder. Right. And so they can't live together in Jerusalem legally according mm. to Israel. Um, and so they either have to, this person who's living in Jerusalem has to give up what he or she has is in Jerusalem, home, whatever, and come to the West Bank. Yeah. Or the West Bank, the person with the West Bank ID lives in Jerusalem with their partner illegally. Yeah. Um, the same can be said for Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, Palestinians from Gaza. Um, we all have a specific status within Israeli law, or we all have a specific place in Israel's legal hierarchy. And if we marry or fall in love outside that legal hierarchy, we can't um, exercise family unification because it's denied by Israel. Yeah. And they were very specific when they were referring to this um, creeping right of return. They were afraid that Palestinian refugees would marry Palestinians inside Israel mm. and be able to return via marriage, even though this wouldn't be a valid exercise of their right of return. But they, were, they wanted to make sure that they kept Palestinians out. So it's one of the mechanisms they use to keep them from returning and to also create a coercive environment. So many of these mixed marriages, uh, people end up leaving Palestine altogether, yeah. going to a country where, uh, where they can uh, live together legally, yeah. which is standard practice among states. So when I married my husband and I had American citizenship, of course I was able to transfer the citizenship to my partner, yes. my husband. Yeah. And there's a process for this. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this exists is because international law and states recognize the right of the family unit to live together. Mm -hmm. uh, Israel does not do that. Yeah. yeah. Again, because the situation is so complicated. We're talking about millions of people's lives over many decades. It's 
kind of hard to know where to begin, but I think that land is a good place to start. So can you talk to me, please, about how land has been used, how land grabs have taken place, and how this has shaped and formed the situation between Palestinians and Israelis now? Well, Israel has created quite a sophisticated mechanism in order to steal um, Palestinian land. And it is theft, mm-hmm. uh, theft of Palestinian-owned land. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the biggest theft of Palestinian-owned land sh- occurred shortly after the Nakba or catastrophe of 1948. Mm-hmm. Of course, this coincides with the creation of the State of Israel. But after the Zionist militias that were already present in Palestine during the mandate, after they ethnically cleansed the, the majority of Palestine of the Palestinian population, they were then incorporated into the Israeli military. So the Zionist militias became Israeli military, and the leaders of the Zionist militias became heads of the Israeli government. Mm-hmm. Um, So then they began, after they created themselves as a nation state, they began issuing laws. Laws to strip Palestinians of their property rights. Now, of course, these laws that they created are not, let's say, in compliance with international law. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the major laws that they issued with it were the absentee property laws of the 1950s. Um, So basically what these laws stated that what, these law, what this law did is that after, as I said, the Zionist militias um, forcibly displaced Palestinians from the land um, and kept them away, mm. they basically labeled uh, Palestinians as absent, even though they were the ones that had created this situation in which Palestinians were absent from their land. Yeah. And then because of this declaration that they were absent and this became absentee property, they said that the property would come under the ownership of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so they created a custodianship for these absentee properties, um, which theoretically, Israel, the custodianship should um, safeguard the lands until Palestinians return. But in actuality, what happened is that a significant amount of these lands were converted into Israeli state lands and came under the direct ownership of the Israeli government. And to this day, 93, I think, 92, 93% of what is Israel today are Israeli state lands. That same percentage is Palestinian lands. Yeah. So there were Palestinian lands that were confiscated by the custodianship, by this absentee property law, that were then converted into Israeli state lands, which then became public use lands for the state. And so, of course, the state used them to um, provide housing, infrastructure, and, of course, bring in additional Israeli Jewish uh, colonizers to settle the land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So they they use the law as one of the ways in which to facilitate this land grab. Mm -hmm. Um, There are many other mechanisms that they use as well besides the absentee property laws. Mm Uh, They use discriminatory zoning and planning. They use um, annexation, of course, which is um, uh, um, 
taking land by force mm -hmm. or aggression, mm -hmm. uh, which is of course also absolutely prohibited under international law. Um, they use different ways uh, to deny access. They use the permit regime. So for example, when we talk about discriminatory and zoning and planning, they will zone an area in a particular way, of course, without the consent and without the participation of the Palestinian owners of the land. So, for example, they'll zone an area as a military zone, mm -hmm. or they'll zone it as an archaeological dig, mm -hmm. or they'll zone it as a nature reserve. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the land becomes off-limits to Palestinians, even though it's their land. Um, and then uh, they will begin to use the land, and it will be transformed into a colony or an Israeli-Jewish-only Israeli settlement. Uh, one of the colonies here, the Harhoma colony, uh, or settlement is international discourse here in the prefers. Yeah, the big one that is here in Bethlehem that you can see from any angle. Yeah. That started off as a nature reserve. Mm. So it was a hilltop that was covered in trees that previously Israel had zoned as a nature preserve. And of course, all the land there was owned by Palestinians from the Bethlehem, Beit Jala, Beit Sahur area, mm -hmm. because it's a hilltop that's kind of centrally located uh, between those three cities. Um, that it was zoned as a nature preserve. And then when, at the first Netanyahu administration in 19, I believe, don't quote me on the years, but in the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, he cut down all the trees. Yeah. There, his administration cut down all the trees and began building what is known as the Harhoma settlement. Mm -hmm. Before it became Harhoma, it was, uh, it was called Jabal Abu Ghneim, or Abu Ghneim Hill. Mm -hmm. And it was a forest, uh, my husband kept on, what, because my husband lived here most of his, all of his childhood and adult life, he said, when they were younger, they used to go to the forest and bird watch and camp and hunt little animals. Yeah, right. Um, so him and his friends would trek up to the hill and just, you know, spend time there. Now mm -hmm. it's a it's a settlement. No one can trek up there and do anything or use use that area. Also because the forest is gone, it was cut down and then the settlement was built built on top of it. Mm. What strikes me in this conversation is your use of words like settler and colony. And it's not the first time that I've heard it. I really needed, though, to come to Palestine and to see what was happening in order to understand it. I come from a settler colonial state myself, Australia, and I didn't expect to see it happening before my eyes in real time. But that is what's happening here. And it seems to me like that's a more useful way of understanding the conflict rather than considering it as a religious conflict or an ethnic conflict. So can you talk to me a little bit, please, about how the legal apparatus is being used in order to progress what is essentially a colonial agenda? Um, it's the creation of laws to serve a specific purpose, which is to control the maximum amount of land. Because yep. for Israel, uh, controlling the land means you can control what's on and what's not on the land. And for them, controlling the land means not only do they want to control it, but they also want to control it Palestinian-free. So they want, to, they want Palestinians not there, off the land, 
And they also want to, the other aspect of it is to colonize that territory with a desired population, and in this case, Jews from around the world. Um, so in order to be able to do that, they had to remove Palestinians from the land. They had to keep them off the land. And how did they do that? Armed violent conflict creates what international law calls force yeah. and forces people off the land. Yes. Um, the other way that they forced people off the land is what international law calls a coercive environment. Um, and a coercive environment that doesn't necessarily have to be physical violent force applied, but in layman's terms it means the creation of a situation that is so unbearable that people really have no choice but yeah. to leave their place of origin or habitual residence. Yeah. So fear tactics, um, threat of persecution, um, cutting Palestinians off from their livelihoods yeah. because Palestine was traditionally an agricultural uh, society, and so if farmers don't have land to farm, mm -hmm. then how can they make a living? Um, uh, suppression methods, the permit regime, basically the violation of fundamental rights that allow you to live and have an adequate um, standard of living in the area in which you reside. So removing these things like access to water, movement restrictions, etc., etc., uh, you create an environment in, in which an individual or group can't really remain in that location. Mm -hmm. And while no physical force is applied, there is an element of force or unwillingness uh, or a coercive situation that is created that forces people to go elsewhere. Absolutely, and yeah. the impact on livelihoods. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah, uh, as I said, because Palestine was predominantly an agricultural um, community or an agricultural uh, state, but the different um, produce that was native to Palestine, the grapes, etc., mm -hmm. um, all of these things uh, were the foundations of our economy. Yeah. Uh, without the land, how can we continue this traditional lifestyle or this traditional economy? Yes. Uh, so that was, that was a main factor, uh, of course. And now what you see is a buildup of the city centers mm -hmm. and people who had families uh, who had traditionally been farming and agricultural families are no longer because they don't have this, this access or this ability to, to farm the land. And mm. and for the layperson who's struggling to understand the complexity of it, how do you bring all of these different factors together to be able to explain the bigger picture? So building the wall is a mechanism, okay? The permit regime, the land grab, uh, the denial of movement, uh, the suppression, uh, the lack of freedom of expression, the denial to right to worship, uh, the denial of residency, the denial of family unification, all of these things are used to maintain this regime that is designed to keep Palestinians out or get them out and keep them out and to continue to control the land in a way that benefits Israel. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times as well the permit regime. Can mm -hmm. you explain a little bit more about that? Certainly. Um, 
what what Badil did early on was kind of categorize the nine main ways or the nine main policies in which Israel creates a coercive environment. I mentioned one already, the discriminatory zoning and planning. There are eight other ones. One of them is the permit regime. Uh, the Israeli permit regime is a complex system of permits uh, to which Palestinians must um, adhere to in order to be able to do very basic things like build yeah. or develop or farm, mm -hmm. travel, get access to health care, education, movement, the ability to worship. And there are 101 different permits within the Israeli permit regime. Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes, the administrative aspect of the permits is very vague or very unknown, so people don't really know uh, how to apply for which permit is best suited for them. And of course, approval is, is based on what Israel um, deems to be in their security interest. Uh, of course, there are oftentimes a permit will be denied based on security, but the allegation from the is coming from the Israeli government will be um, not anything substantial. Yeah. Uh, so it's more of a, a, a way or, or a mechanism to be able to keep Palestinians from their land in some cases, mm -hmm. to keep Palestinians from being able to access um, health care, education, to keep yeah. Palestinians confined and contained so they have very little mobility. Um, of course, it, it works in combination with the checkpoints and the barriers and the so on and the so forth. Mm, sure. So Palestinians have to get permission from the Israeli civil administration to be, to be able to do any type of development to their land. Mm. Um, so if you submit for a, a permit, let's say, to build a water cistern, let's say you're a farmer and you don't have water on your land, which is another resource that Israel controls, but you don't have water on your land. So you decide, for example, that you are going to um, gather rainwater, build a cistern and gather marine water so that you can farm and irrigate your land throughout the year. Um, you have to get a permit for that. Right. And if you don't get a permit, then you can't legally build, legally according to Israeli law. Sure. So if you don't get the permit and the Israeli civil administration finds out that you did do some development, like a cistern or even like a barracks, so that you could, because, you know, farming is seasonal. Sometimes yes. you need to stay on the land or whatever type of infrastructure. It could be a fence, it could be electricity, it could mm -hmm. be whatever. So if you don't get this permission and the Israeli civil administration finds out, then they deem your structure, whatever it is, to be illegal. And then they issue a demolition order. Right. And so when you hear about illegal Palestinian structures and Israel demolishing another illegal structure, these are structures that were built, yes, without Israeli permission, but they were built on Palestinian lands that were supposed to be for Palestinian use. Mm -hmm. And it's a way that Israel prevents Palestinians from being able to take advantage of this natural resource that they have and yes. also be able to continue their livelihoods and expand, uh, allowing the natural growth of, of communities because, yeah. you know, communities grow and they need to expand. Are Israeli citizens subject to a similar set of permit requirements? 
They are, but they are facilitated more for them. So, for example, the number of permits that are rejected by Israel or denied by Israel when submitted by Palestinians is close to 98%. At the same time, the number of permits submitted by Israeli Jews, including colonizers within the occupied territory, have an, a, have an approval rate at the same rate that Palestinian permits are rejected. So 98% approval rate for Israeli Jews, 98% rejection rate for Palestinians. Yeah. So there is that discrimination within the, uh, the system and within the permit regime and within many Israeli um, actions and policies and laws. Yeah. So given this situation of coercive control where people are being excluded from their livelihoods, they're not able to farm the way they want, they're not able to do business the way they want, they're not able to move around, uh, there are checkpoints everywhere. What options are available and what can the international community do to support this? Well, we have this great framework called International Law and Human Rights that was created by the international community to support peace throughout the world. So these, they created this set of laws and principles and basic um, rights that states are supposed to adhere to. And if they don't adhere to them, then there are consequences, which is also contained within this framework of international law and human rights. The sad fact is, though, that they are not applying or they are biasly applying international law and human rights. Um, and unfortunately, the predominant approach that has been taken by governments and um, international agencies operating in Palestine is a humanitarian aid development approach that is very far removed from the rights-based approach that is required to resolve the conflict. Now, don't get me wrong, humanitarian aid and assistance are also necessary. I'm not saying that these things should be completely removed because we have situations of crisis, we have the wars on Gaza. But there also should be things that are done to prevent these things from happening. Israel shouldn't feel comfortable in waging war on an occupied people, um, which they have done three times. And this is because the international community has allowed them to do so. Or, in other words, they haven't taken any steps to hold Israel accountable or force them into compliance with international law for the consequences of their actions. So, for example, when they rebuilt Gaza the first time after the first war that Israel waged on Gaza in 2008-2009, who paid? Who paid for the reconstruction? I don't know. It was the international community. Mm -hmm. And then it was destroyed in the second war. Yeah. And then who paid? The international community. And then it was destroyed in the third war. And then who paid? Well... Very little has been paid and reconstructed, but whatever work was done was done by the international community. Yeah. Now, why does the international community need to continue to clean up after Israel? Why isn't Israel held accountable? And this is problematic for, for, for a number of reasons. One, you're not responsible, so why are you paying? You know, why are your taxpayer dollars going to rebuild Gaza again and again? This is just one example, of course. 
Why isn't Israel held accountable for the damage that they have done during the war? Mm. And because they get away with it, because they get away with a, um, a financial pass and a legal pass, of course, then they wage war again. Yeah. So the more, it's, it's the same idea. If you let a child rob a candy store, Mm. and they get away with it and there's no consequences, they're going to continue to rob the candy store. Of course, we have a situation that is more severe than robbing a candy store, but the same thing applies. Mm. Um, if Israel is allowed to continue to violate international law and human rights, what's to stop it from violating international law and human rights again and again, and then also escalating or enhancing, increasing these violations? Yeah. So if we go back to the Gaza, the wars on Gaza again, mm -hmm. each subsequent war was more um, intense, yeah. and the losses and the damage each time were more significant. Yeah. And yet Israel is not held to account. Yeah. Uh, the same is true for the forced displacement and transfer and keeping Palestinians out. Israel has been displacing Palestinians and taking their land since 1948. And they've been denying return since 1948. And so they continue to take land and continue to deny return, to mm -hmm. continue to violate international law. And build a wall and... Absolutely, and create all the mechanisms necessary to entrench this regime of yeah. human rights violations and crimes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, we've spoken and we've circled around the issue of right of return, mm -hmm. um, issues around permits, issues around land as well, the legal issue of Israel purportedly taking custodianship of land but then not um, keeping their side of the deal. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit about right of return because again that's a, one of those phrases that we hear about and don't understand. Mm -hmm. Well, the right of return in general, when we talk about the international right of return, is one of the most foundational laws within international law. The right of return is your right to freely leave and return to your place of origin or habitual residence. And this is a law that belongs to everyone. Yeah. Um, it doesn't just belong to those who are displaced. Yes. But if you are displaced, one of the predominant rights you have is, of course, the right to freely choose to return yes. based on this law. So the three ways in which a right of return can be violated are if you are forced to leave and you don't want to go. Yep. If you leave freely and change your mind and want to return and you're not allowed. Yep. Or if you want to leave mm. and you're not permitted from going. Yeah. So the foundations for the right of return are at least a hundred years old, if yeah. not more so. It's, it's considered the most foundational right that allows you to access your other rights. Because yes. within your place of origin or habitual residence, where you are able to, to reside and remain, um, there are structures that have been created for you to... Um, to move about, have an adequate living, adequate housing, access to health care, education, and so on and so forth. When you are removed from that, you are stripped from all of these things as well. Mm. Um, and so this is why international law 
um, also provides humanitarian aid and assistance to people who have been displaced in order to fill those gaps. Um, in terms of Palestinians, the right of return is, I would say, uh, especially important. One, because of the large number of Palestinian refugees and IDPs, internally displaced persons. We are the longest and largest standing displaced population in the world. We are talking about 66% of the Palestinian population. Yeah. Two-thirds yeah. have been displaced and dispossessed. Okay. With the other third on its way, because we have a situation of ongoing displacement through this coercive environment in Israeli policies and practices. So it's the main or the core issue when we talk about the conflict. Um, I would also say that it's an integral component to the right of self-determination as well. Because when we talk about the right of self-determination in general, or in specific regards to the Palestinian people, how can you achieve the right of self-determination without the application or the implementation of the right of return? So you're saying, for example, self-determination for the 34% that haven't been displaced, a third of the population, that's not self-determination. Uh, so I would say that it's, it's the most crucial facet of the conflict, and it is the, the core of the conflict. And without resolving this, everything else is just, you know, window dressings. Yeah. So as we start to wind down this interview, can you speak to me a little bit about the Oslo Accords, where... Palestine was divided up into areas A, B, and C, and which was meant to mark the beginning of, of what the international community termed the two-state solution. What do you think of the two-state solution and how it's impacted on everyday Palestinians as they try to live their lives? I mean, we have a situation in which obviously we're occupied. Uh, and yeah. as I said, Israel is in effective control, regardless of whether we're talking about area A, B, and C. Mm. Um, and so I think for us, Oslo, even though we were very hopeful with the beginning of the Oslo Accords that there might be some change, the Oslo Accords were actually used or were a mechanism that was used by Israel to ferment or cement this control yeah, and also facilitate additional land grab right under the eyes of the international community. Yeah. Um, and even though the international community continues to support a two-state solution, they're not doing anything to back up this supposed solu political solution that they came up with. Mm. Uh, a state for Palestinians yeah. alongside a state for, for Israeli Jews. Mm. And they keep allowing this land grab through various means to the point to where we have come to a situation of annexation. Yeah. Uh, and still yet there has been no response from the international community. If the international community wants to have a two-state solution, is really bought into a two-state solution, then there are certain things that they need to do to halt Israeli land grab um, and the mechanisms that they use to keep on taking Palestinian lands. So, final question for you now. Um, I mean, we've talked about many, many sad things. Mm -hmm. What's your dream for the future? Do you hold hope? 
I always hold hope. Uh, well, not always. Sometimes <laughs> I do get depressed. But no, when I when I see what Palestinians when I see that Palestinians are resolute in not being displaced. Yeah. So for me, it's not a matter of what they are doing, but the fact that they won't go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, their steadfastness astounds me because I know in great and excruciating detail what Israel has done and continues to do in order to take control of the land yeah. by getting rid of people and confiscating their land. And, and all the heinous human rights violations and crimes that Israel has perpetuated. Um, and I see this, and yet I see people who are continue to go about their business. Yeah. And continue to live and yeah. continue to remain. Yeah. Um, and we talk to people all the time because of our research and we, you know, gather testimonies for our publications and so on and so forth. And they'll say, well, we're not, we're not going anywhere. Mm. We're not going anywhere. Um, and those who had left or were forced to leave continue to call for return. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if it's a 70-year conflict or a 700-year conflict, or a 7,000-year conflict. Mm -hmm. Once Israel and the international community realizes that we're not going anywhere, this is when we will actually start to have progress yeah. um, in terms of the realization of our rights. And they need to come to terms with the fact that that is the situation. The situation mm -hmm. is that Palestinians are not going to relinquish their rights. Mm -hmm. And so the sooner that we resolve this issue, the sooner that we actually adhere to international law and human rights and provide rights, then the sooner we can live in peace and dignity together. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way that it's going to happen. Yeah. Lavna, thank you so much for joining me and uh, for taking the time and being so generous in sharing all of this information. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for being interested in what I have to say. <laughs> if you want to find out a bit more about Badil's work, visit their website at www.badil.org. They've got some excellent resources, some of which we've also listed in the show notes for this podcast episode. I encourage you to check them out. If you enjoyed this episode and think others might too, please do share amongst your networks. And don't forget to subscribe go to our website www.bridgingpeoples.com where you can access all of our podcasts and other resources. You can also find out a bit more about some of the other work that we do, including our online academy and network. I'm your host, Deborah Cummins. Thanks for joining me. This is a Bridging Peoples podcast.